0: Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, your word is a gift. Lord Jesus, your gospel is our foundation. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear to what you have to say to your church. Amen. Several decades ago, Many food and drink companies decided to market products that appealed to the new diet crazes. Soon you had Diet Coke, a great alternative to that sugary, unhealthy substance called Coca-Cola. You'll be much healthier if you drank this diet drink instead of the other. Other companies were marketing fat-free options— Fat-free cheese, fat-free salad dressing, fat-free potato chips. If you eat these things, you'll be healthy. Lay off all those other fatty foods and have a steady diet of these fat-free products, and you'll be lean and healthy. Interestingly, you turn around the product, and you look at the ingredient list of the healthy products, and then you see that list is like that long. They're not long just because of the amount of ingredients, but the length of the words of the ingredients. And most of them you can't even pronounce. Come to find out these sugar-free, carb-free, fat-free ingredients are terrible for your body if you, take, if you consume them from long periods of time. And many of these products are no longer on the shelves because of this. What appeared to be healthy was actually awful for you. And what is actually most health, healthy for you is what has all, always been commonly known as being healthy, eating in moderation, eating things from this earth, vegetables, natural grains, fruits, lean meats. But that's not exciting. That's boring. And that's not going to become a New York Times bestseller, but it is healthy. Now, we aren't going to delve into diet and exercise this morning, but we will examine something of greater need, and that's spiritual health. How does one grow in spiritual health? How do we live a quality life in the spirit? Well, spiritual fads like diets come and go. Many of them have a veneer of godliness, but are actually detrimental. What grows us as a body in Christ is just a plain old steady diet of the spiritual disciplines that come from the Word and what the saints of all ages throughout have practiced. Nothing new or exciting, just old-fashioned biblical discipline. This morning, we will continue our study through the letter of 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 16. And in this text, First Timothy four, Paul uses the language of training. He gives Timothy instructions on proper training in the Christian life and how he's how is he supposed to pass this on to others. <clears throat> so, in First Timothy four, we will see two things: what we should avoid in training, and what we should be devoted to in training. Well, first, as those being trained in Christ, all of us are in Christ, we should avoid that which is not in accordance with His Word. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, the insincerity sincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed." So Paul here transitions from the Christological hymn to a warning and challenge, from what the the callings of the elders and the the deacons to now this. Now the Holy Spirit, he says, has made it clear to the apostles that in the near future, the later times, certain persons. Again, same word he uses in in, uh, chapter 1. ESV translates it as some, but certain persons or some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to teachings of demons. So he's saying some of those in the physical body, local body of the church, in the household of God, those who have made professions of faith and have been baptized, who as far as we could observe at the time, seem to be believers. And then it would be revealed who they truly are, not believers. They will also follow false teachings and false disciplines and be evangelists for these false teachings and false disciplines. These deceitful spirits will deceive. Well, how so? How are they deceptive? Because their teaching has a facade of godliness. Their teaching was like the saccharin or the monosodium glutamate. It sounds like a healthy thing, but it's a healthy alternative, but it's actually terrible for you. And they're not teaching necessarily adultery and drunkenness or other debaucheries. No, they teach piety. At this time, they were saying only the spiritual is good. All physical things are bad. Therefore, marriage is icky, and if you really want to be godly, then you forsake marriage. Marriage is for disgusting sinners who can't control themselves. And not only that, but certain foods are forbidden. You must not eat these things, not because they are bad for you from a health perspective, but godly people don't eat such things. You can't eat certain meats and be a godly person. If you don't fast three times a week, you can't inherit eternal life. You'll notice something missing here. No gospel. All commands and no forgiveness of sins. Commands not in Scripture, but have a veneer of piety. And some commands that were given to the Israelites for a time and not for God's people of all time, but are now being used to bind the Christian conscience. Either way, it's an unbiblical approach to piety, even though it has the uh, veneer of it. And in this case, it was also a desecration of God's good creation. Marriage is a good thing created by God, so to forbid it is wrong. God has given us food to eat, no longer forbidding any food for our enjoyment. It was created for our enjoyment and meant to be an opportunity to give thanks to the God who creates all the good things. God created these things holy, and they are sanctified by our prayers of thanksgiving for our Creator. Many folks were taking good things and forbidding them, thinking that in some way that makes them holy. Thinking that 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 is a means by which they are holy. Total disregard for the gospel of grace. Total disregard for justification for faith alone. And any disregard for sinners being justified by faith alone and Christ alone is demonic. Our holiness is based upon his shed blood alone and faith alone. And we respond to his goodness with lives of thankfulness and praise. Because grace yields praise and thankfulness in return. Those who know grace respond in praise and thanksgiving. And this is part of what, Paul, what Timothy was to instruct the congregation. That they are to receive everything from God with thanksgiving. And Paul says in verse 6, if you stick with this, if you remain in this, if you diligently teach this, you will be a good deacon or servant of Christ Jesus. He uses the, the, the Greek term diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. Now He's not referring to the, the position of deacon, but he's referring to the general servanthood of a deacon. And, and Paul, throughout his letters, uses deacon, not referring to the office, but referring to servants of the church, his co-workers as deacons. But by Timothy putting his training in the Word of God and what Paul and all the other apostles have taught him, then he will be the person God has called him to be, a good servant. Not that exciting, but a good servant. But shouldn't that be the ambition of all of us? Why do we want so much to be somebody? We want to be the the next John Piper or R.C. Sproul. Or in the business world, we want to be the next VP of the organization. Or for many of us, we want to be that big-time influencer on social media. Why? And then, who's going to care about all this stuff? Our ambition in life is to be a good servant of Christ— taking what, God, what Christ has taught us in His Word and walking in it. And not only that, but leading others in it as well. And why can't we just be content in that? For God uses whomever He wills, however He wills. And if He wills you to be a no-name to His glory, be content with that. He rewards greatly the no-names. Now, we know some but very little about Timothy's ministry beyond these letters. We don't know much about his life after this. Was he successful or was he run out of town? Did he serve in relative uh, obscurity the rest of his life? Probably. But that is being a good servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus. The danger is, is hating contentment, hating servanthood, hating obscurity. We want to be somebody, so what do we do? We try to be unique. Try to say something that no one else has said before. Be a trendsetter, something that will bring attention. You think about book sales. You have commentaries on biblical books that are faithful to the text and not going beyond orthodoxy. Yawn. But Hey, you get a book that denies essential doctrines of the faith, you got a bestseller there. Online video that gets tons of views because someone is deconstructing what they were raised on or believed on most of their lives, and now they're famous in order to be somebody. There's a temptation in all of us to be somebody, and that is in all of us. None of us are immune to this wretched sin. And following Christ and being faithful to his word is not going to equal fame and fortune. And in this case, in Timothy's context, denying the gospel and denying the sanctity of creation was a way to gain followers and prosperity and popularity. So avoid such things, Timothy. Avoid the temptation to be somebody and stray from Christ's good word and his perfect will in order to avoid persecution and to gain popularity. Avoid such things. Be devoted to him and to his word. Okay, well, what does this look like for the day to day? If we, Timothy, and all of us, sh- shouldn't devote ourselves to selfish ambitions— what does devotion to Christ look like? Look at verses 7 through 16. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. Which, you, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's those being trained of Christ, all of us, we should practice that which is in accordance with his word. Paul here gives 12 imperatives, 12 commands in this section. First, don't waste your time with myths and old wives' tales. And this is probably what these, these folks in verses 1 through 3 were basing their doctrines on, their practices, is fr- practices from, not Bible, but intriguing stories. Writings that have spiritual themes, maybe scripture verses in them, but are far from what the scriptures as a whole teach. Don't waste your time on them, Timothy, but do something. What is that? What is he to do? Train yourself for godliness. He uses an athletic term here, a Greco Roman phrase here for competitive exercise. If our lone ambition is to be a good servant of Christ, there is athletic training involved. Paul says, physical training is of value, no doubt. But its value is limited. Diet and exercise are are good things, but ultimately diet and exercise can't erase the curse of sin. Death is coming for all of us until Christ comes. However, Training in godliness, or the spiritual disciplines, have eternal value. And Paul follows that statement in verse 8 by the repeated phrase that's throughout the pastoral epistles. The statement is trustworthy, or literally the word is faithful. And again, this serves as a marker to show that this phrase needs to be etched on your brain. Remember this. Remember verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness and to be a good servant of Christ is our ambition, as Paul describes for us in verse 10. He says, this is the goal of which we toil and strive. Again, using athletic and laboring terms here. The second one, the second term here is where we get the word agony. For those of you who have had rigorous trainings in various sports, maybe you've trained for marathons, or even some of you recently have had to go through rehabs for after surgeries. You know what Paul's getting at here. The grueling process of exercise and rehab. The discipline of the Christian life is an intense training process. We know the end goal, the prize, but there's a lot of discomfort along the way. Our bodies and minds love stagnation. Movement and exercise is uncomfortable. We like mental stagnation, therefore we like TV and social media. Using your mind and reading and listening is uncomfortable. Being alone and to ourselves is comfortable. Giving ourselves to others and being around others is uncomfortable. But listen, comfort has no reward. Discomfort has great reward. And who is the reward? It is Christ. Christ the one who became man and lived with all the discomforts of the fallen world. He was tempted in every way. He died an uncomfortable death for us. And he rose victoriously from the grave. And he sits on high and he will come again for us and will judge the world. And for those who repent of their sins and trust in him and what he has done, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. And this message, this here, this message is the motivation for our striving. Not in order to gain salvation, but Christ, because Christ is the one who's gained salvation for us. But we strive because our hearts are set on His glory, and His glory is our joy. He is our ambition. The one who is the Savior of the world, the Savior of all All who place their faith in him, as he says in verse 10. He is the Savior of all people, all all believers, all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who believe in him. He is the Savior of all people, that is, all who believe in his name. And this is the message Timothy was entrusted to command and teach with authority. The gospel and the Christian life that flows from the gospel. But before he gets to the specifics of the spiritual disciplines or what he is to do and to model for others, let's look at what follows his statement in verse 11. He is to command and teach these things. He's commanded by Paul to command and teach these things, authoritative actions. Remember back how we saw that, that teaching is an authoritative action. You function as an authority as a teacher. And Timothy, as an overseer, was to have authority in the church, not ultimate. Christ is the ultimate authority. He is the chief shepherd. And the congregation affirms this, but he is an authority. But there's One minor problem with Timothy. Look at verse the beginning of verse twelve. Let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was young. And no one respects youth. Now Timothy wasn't a child, but he also didn't have a head full of gray gray either. So how can a young man, a young pastor, be respected? How can he function as an authority when he's younger than most of the congregation? Well, look at the second part of verse 12. But, but, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Set an example in what you say, how you say it, what you do and how you do that. So that, so that they can't reproach you for your youth. For you appear wiser than most. Your youth won't be a hindrance to your leadership. They no longer see you as a young man, but as a godly man. And how will this happen? What are the means by which this happens? Look again at verse 13. It says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. While I'm gone, Timothy, while I'm gone, until I come back, preach the Word. He tells him essentially the same thing in the second letter to Timothy when he commands him to preach the Word. But in verse 13 here, he says it in in the same thing, but in a different way. He tells them to be devoted to these three connected actions. Reading, exhorting, teaching. So what is preaching? First aspect, the public reading of the Word. Why? So that all will know that you're preaching God's Word, not your own. Second, teaching. You're explaining the uh, the text to others so others can understand. Third, exhorting. You challenge the congregation to walk in the text of what God's Word says to us. Now, that's the most simplistic way of explaining what preaching is. Reading, teaching, exhorting, all connected. There's more to it than that, but the most simplistic way. Do this, Timothy. This is primary for you as a pastor. This is primary for the church. The preached word is central to the church gathering. Everything else derives its importance from the preached word. Singing and the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper. all point to or flow from the preached word. And this is likely the gift which Paul is talking about here that was, was confirmed by the church by the laying on the hands of the elders. He was gifted with the ability to effectively teach and preach for the building up of the church. And that's what all the spiritual gifts are for, the building up of the church. And this call of God, this prophetic gifting was affirmed by the church, and he was not to neglect it. However, he wasn't supposed to just preach to the congregation. What else? He was to live it. In verse 15 and 16, he says, he tells them to practice these things. Be in these things. Keep a close watch on yourself. Persist in this. And what are these things that Paul is talking about here? The Word of God, the apostolic preaching, and the gospel. The teaching of it and living in it. Devote yourself to them and be in them. The ESV translated it as, as immerse yourself in them, but it's literally be in them. And this brings to mind the, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, of which the Israelites would recite three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. And they shall be as frontlets on your foreheads. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." This is what Paul's talking about here. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, immersion or devotion. Not just know it, teach it. Not just teach it, live it. By any means necessary, have it stamped on your mind and heart. Be in the Word morning and night. Read it, hear it, recite it, and enjoy it. Constantly think about ways to apply it. Be a doer of the Word, not just a hearer. And why do this, Timothy? Why? Look at verse 15. So that, so that all may see your progress, all may see Christ in you, all may see God's sanctifying work in you, that they may be encouraged by seeing Christ formed in you. And there's another reason that he's to be diligent in this, that he's also to be persistent in it. Why? Ultimately, that he will save both himself and his hearers. Now, contextually, he's not talking about justification here, being declared righteous by God. Being diligent in the disciplines is not how someone gains a right standing with God. But no, he is referring to final perseverance. So please know this. Those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies, and he also glorifies. This is the chain of salvation of which we know from Romans 8. All those who truly, truly come to faith in Christ will persevere to the end. Christ has promised that. But that perseverance is through means. There's a responsibility to strive. We discipline ourselves for godliness. We watch over our lives with fear and trembling and humility. The life of a Christian is not a stagnant life. It's a life of continual progression. And we progress by immersing ourselves in the local body, the church. We progress by being diligent in prayer and in the word. We progress by regularly fellowshipping together with other believers. We progress by passing the faith to others. These are the means. And this is quite the opposite of those who did not persevere in verses 1 through 3. For we know that what they truly were was revealed. They neglected the word and the practice of it for myths and old wives' tales. But not so of Timothy. Not so of Timothy and the congregation of which he was entrusted. These things, these biblical disciplines of true godliness, were what Timothy was called to lead the church in doing. So it is important for us as a church that it is not merely for pastors, this is for all of us. Pastors are just called to lead. In it. For some of you, spiritual discipline is a struggle. You have a hard time with consistent fellowship with believers. Reading is a tough chore for you. Prayer does, just does not seem to come naturally for you. Well, take this time to say, you know, I don't care. I'm going to, with the Lord's strength, make myself uncomfortable and form godly habits. Maybe some of you are really diligent in your disciplines, but there's no joy. It's all routine and blind ritual. Sometimes you even forget whether you did that, that day or not. And I confess, that's sometimes me. Slow down. Chew the food. Don't gulp. Pause and reflect and enjoy, enjoy God's gift. He's gifted. He's given us His Word. He's given us the privilege of prayer. Maybe your issue is you are disciplined yourself, but— Don't practice these things with others. Kind of an individualist type of approach to Christianity. Well, make it a point, fathers and mothers, to have a daily rhythm with your children in prayer and in the Word. Fathers, uh, husbands, and wives, talk about together among yourselves. Talk about how your Scripture intake and how your prayer life is going. Encourage one another in it. Pray together. Men, meet regularly with some other men to study and prayer together outside the normal gathering of the church. And believe me, no other activity or agenda is needed. Just prayer, Bible, and fellowship. We all need brotherly accountability and fellowship. And by the way, great evangelism opportunities when you do that out in a public place. And women already do an excellent job at this. So continue in that and encourage the men around you. But with all of us, all of us together, we practice this together. Practice these things together in accordance with the teaching of Christ. The chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, 1 Timothy. It shows us that as servants in training in Christ, we should diligently, diligently devote our lives to what is in accordance with the good disciplines of Christ and His Word. This is what Paul called Timothy to devote himself to, and to teach others in it. Godliness in Christ, which is likely, likely to lead to obscurity or opposition rather than the unscriptural things that often bring popularity and avoidance of persecution. So let us devote ourselves to Christian discipline. How? Well, first, regularly be in the gathering of the church. Be here, physically here, for the singing, the reading, the preaching of God's Word in the Lord's Supper. This is first and foremost. Do not regularly neglect being here. Now, I know there are emergencies. There are severe physical handicaps. There are vacations. There are sicknesses. There are business trips. That's not what we're talking about here. It's the consistently not being here when you're able. For that's harmful. That's hurtful to you and to the body of which you have covenanted together to be with. You're not just harming yourself, but others as well. So be here. Be here and build up the body. Secondly, take in the Word of God daily, regardless of whether that is reading or listening to it read, regardless of whether that's in the morning, the night, or the afternoon. Just make sure you do it. Read through books of the Bible and know them well. Chew on them. Meditate on it. Have Deuteronomy 6 constantly in your mind as you read the Word of God. You know, the good practice is to take time and read and study the, the ancient creeds and confessions of the churches. These documents that the churches have used to summarize biblical teaching. For example, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the, Ashton, the Athanasian Creed, or look at the Heidelberg Catechism or the Second London Baptist Confession, to name a few. They don't have the authority of Scripture, but they are incredible summaries of key doctrines of Scripture. And these help us discern what is good and sound Christian literature and teaching as we are learning from God's people from all ages. Third, be continually in prayer. Be diligent in writing down what you are thankful for. People to pray for. The church directory is a great place to start. And attributes of God to praise Him for. All this requires, yes, uncomfortability, discipline. But Christ is worth it. His glory is worth it. And all this, and all of these things, practice these things with, with others, with the local body, with other believers. Others that can encourage you and which you can encourage. This could look like meeting with a few others at a coffee shop or at someone's house. Everyone is busy. There's not a single person you're going to talk to that's not going to say, I've been busy. We're all busy. But you prioritize things you want to prioritize. To prioritize godliness, motivated by the gospel, all aimed at the hope we have in God our Savior. Now, for any of you who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you've come because of an invitation or just trying to figure out things here this morning. We'd like to invite you to trust Christ today. Jesus died for our sins and was raised that we could have eternal life. Believe this message today. And if that's you, talk to someone here in the pew next to you that would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ. All of us would love to talk to you about following Christ. So trust Him today. Follow Him today. Let's bow our heads in in prayer. Our God, our Savior, our hope, give us strength, endurance to walk in the biblical disciplines today. Help us to crave your word. Guide us to practice your word. We pray right now that the gospel message will give those in here that don't know you, that it will go bring through and, and break their hearts, Lord, and you will save them. That you would not give them rest, that they will have no rest until they find rest. And you, and I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.